Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My name is Kave. I think I'm saying that right. I'm joined today by a couple of guests, and this is going to be an exciting episode for me because there's some smart people joining me today. Let's start with Dr. Ryan Marino, who everyone already knows from the show, ER doctor, toxicologist. Ryan, how are you, buddy? I am great. I'm glad um, to be here. It's so good to see you, man. Your you face too. just makes me happy. I like seeing your face. <laughs> when I don't see your face, I miss your face. And now yeah. I see your face and I'm happy to see your face. It's a well, nice thanks for face. having me. <laughs> it's hard to make Ryan blush. I try my damnedest, but it really is hard to do it. Um, joining us, it's Ed Nuremberg. Edward, Ed, Ed, Eddie. Either one. It doesn't matter. Science communicator focuses on vaccines. He's great on Twitter about battling vaccine misinformation. He deals with the, the data. You guys say data or data? Real quick question. Paul, who says data? I alternate. I alternate based on my audience. Yeah. Okay. Wait, wait, I wait. I try not to like, say datum because that confuses people. When you say you alternate it based on your audience, which is the, the smarter version? Because that's the one I want to use. I like to keep people guessing. Yeah, I just like to mix it go. up. If you switch it up, <laughs> makes them doubt themselves. Well, you have to keep a little bit of mystery in life. I like that answer better. So, Ed is is really great online. He he he's good at taking really deep dives on really complicated science behind the vaccine. So uh, it's so good to have you on, buddy. How how are you doing, Ed? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. This is really exciting for me. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Oh my god, that's so sweet. And also joining us, and this name is a little more difficult for me. Uh, it is. We're going to start by saying it is not your real name. It is your nom de guerre. Uh, your pseudonym yes. it is dr neuro Fourier. yes am i saying that correctly <laughs> yes you did actually can you tell me what neuro Fourier is uh so <laughs> i was very much when i did my phd i did a lot of work in um cerebrospinal fluid and i did a lot of work in neuroscience and i did also a lot of work with 
uh, Fourier transformations, which is like a, one of the mathematical like concepts. And it's one of my favorite ones. So um, I know some people will disagree and probably think I'm a little, you know, uh, wrong in the head for that. But <laughs> it's no, no, uh, it's my favorite, too. And I totally <laughs> knew what it was. Oh, yes. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I had to do well, I didn't do the Fourier analysis, obviously, because I was in high school, but I, I did a little bit of research on X-ray crystallography. And I know that that is involved in solving the structures. What I remember of it is it's trying to express uh, functions as combinations of uh, sine functions, right? Guys, guys, this is a, a podcast with a largely <laughs> doctor audience. You're talking way over our heads. Okay, come on. This is you're, this is, sorry, you're gonna yeah. have to dumb it down like four levels for us doctors and, we, and we doctor affiliated types. <laughs> no, no, it stays in. Okay, um, so Dr. Neuro Fourier or Dr. N, as, as I'll call you, you're an infectious disease specialist and global health technical lead at the CDC. Is that uh, accurate to say? That's correct. Yes. Okay, very good. So uh, I'm glad I have the three of you guys here with me today. I think it's time to do a vaccine update, um, talk a little bit about where we're at, where we're going as well. L let's just start with the very basics. I'll start with you, Ed. You know, can you just briefly cover how these vaccines are a little different, the ones we have so far for COVID, how they're a little different than the ones we've had for prior illness? and how we were able to make them quicker than we have in the past. Yeah, um, so, you know, the thing is, in a lot of ways, they're actually really similar to the vaccines we already had. Um, the way that we were able to get them so quickly is because, in short, they were like the only aspect of the pandemic that we actually bothered to invest in preparedness for. <laughs> um, so basically, when SARS happened in 2003, there was a lot of research. And I think in around 2006, it was shown that if you make antibodies against the spike protein, those are neutralizing and they uh, essentially stop um, the virus from being able to infect cells and cause disease. Um, so that was kind of a starting point. Then people started working on vaccines on, against SARS. And then uh, the Vaccine uh, Research Institute uh, was doing work on MERS that they're part of the NIH. And they also started doing what's called um, structural optimization of antigens, where basically you change the, um, the target for the immune system in a way that would uh, improve it in some way. And that's when they saw that what's called prefusion stabilization of the MERS spike protein makes it a much better antigen. Um, so basically what that means is for the spike protein to work, it has to transition from a prefusion state to a postfusion state so it can fuse the virus's membranes and the cell's membranes and release the genome and then initiate the infection, uh, the process of infection. So based on that information, it was known very early on exactly how to modify SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And with mRNA, you can work really, really quickly. You just need the genome sequence um, you do a little bit of codon optimization, you give it a five prime untranslated region, a three prime untranslated region, and like bingo, bango, you're all set. And apparently that all took like one weekend. Um, so wait, let me, let me just stop from hearing what I'm hearing from you. I mean, obviously you're, you're, thank you. You're doing a really good job of like, uh, briefly covering that, but am I right to be as impressed as I have been about how fast we were able to make this happen? Or are you kind of thinking, you know, we should have been able to do this we should have been doing this all along oh no this was very very impressive um there's absolutely no question especially like if you consider the regulatory side of it that's really like something like operation warp speed absolutely horrendous name i'm sorry to say um <laughs> meaning no disrespect to peter marks um but 
um, as far as the design and the idea, um, like in, given a public health emergency, it was absolutely the right call. And it was a very, very brilliant solution to a lot of the logistical regulatory hurdles to getting a vaccine out there. So absolutely, this is um, unprecedented in that respect. But it's more impressive to you, the organization and the changing the rules around it, almost the political aspect to it than the science aspect. Am I well, the science is also very, very impressive, but um, this is kind of like the, the magic, so-called, so to speak, of like mRNA technology. You can pivot very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and like really, like, for example, I, I think we'll probably talk about this later, but one, the big barrier right now to changing up our current mRNA vaccines to cover the variants better is not like changing the sequence. That That's very easy. That's very fast. I mean, now like you'd have to adjust like production and manufacturing a bit. So that might take a little while, but the major barrier is you would have to do, you, there's still like a lot of regulatory aspects to it. You have to do an immunogenicity study, prove that it's safe, that kind of thing. Um, and that's what takes the time. So like Moderna CEO recently said, like they won't be able to update the vaccines to include Omicron subvariants by like fall or so, if I remember correctly, Dr. N might um, know better. Yeah, I, I, think, I think we're getting to the point right now where we're starting to see um, a lot of the limitations of some of the pharmaceutical giants and also just even in this case, like the small, smaller companies that are right now doing a lot of really cool work in the technologies. Um, to kind of advance the next stages of the vaccines. Um, and I, I think we'll cover that in a little bit, but uh, mm -hmm. it, it's just that with a lot that's going on and also just in general, it seems like a lot of the political will in a lot of different countries and um, some of the organizations, it seems like you know resources in general are very stringent right now or starting to dwindle uh, because of the fact that I think you know many people kind of almost kind of felt like it's moved on from uh, SARS-CoV-2 right now. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I think this is just unfortunately the reality of what's happening despite the chagrin of like most of us. And there is much chagrin for me, I promise. <laughs> so given that these this is not new technology and there there is kind of ease of making mRNA vaccines, how come this was like the first first one that ever worked at least or made it made it to market? Yeah. I, I mean, there there have been clinical trials for decades. Mostly, they were in the space of like oncology, actually. And like, for example, there um there's a specific class of mRNA vaccines that are dendritic cell vaccines. So like, you take the patient's dendritic cells ex vivo and you give them the mRNA vaccines uh, expressing tumor antigens, and it initiates an immune response against the tumor. And like that kind of approach has also been applied with HIV, although I don't think that was an mRNA vaccine, but basically ex vivo dendritic cell HIV antigens, and it was able to put um, people with HIV into, uh, I think, undetectable um, viral load for at least a year. Um, so it, it definitely has a lot of history. It's just one, one really big challenge of mRNA that like we couldn't really figure out is like, so the X-ray crystallography research I mentioned earlier was actually on RNA. And you would not believe the precautions you have to take to work with RNA. Like, I'm not even kidding when I tell you, like, if you look at this thing funny, it will degrade on you and it will ruin all your experiments and make you very, very sad. Um, you have to store it at minus 80 Celsius. Um, every, all of our water, when I did like research with mRNA, had to be treated with this thing called diethylpyrocarbonate, which inactivates RNases, which are the enzymes that break down RNA, which are absolutely everywhere. They're in dust, they're in the air. Like you can't breathe on it. it it's just, it's so, so like logistically difficult for such a long time and storing it was such a challenge that there just wasn't a lot of faith in the technology, I think, um, mm -hmm. to be, for this kind of like large application. Um, but, you know, as far as like the preclinical data we had, that we had mRNA vaccines for flu uh, and the immunogenicity data was actually better than what infection did um, for mice. So 
like they, it, it always had potential. There was just a lot of logistical barriers, I think. That being said, Dr. N, where, how do you feel the vaccines have done so far? Have they exceeded your expectations? Have they met them? Have not met them? I think they've totally exceeded my expectations. I mean, like I, I will admit that I was very a little skeptical at first based on some of the logistical challenges as uh, Edward had noted, um, but also just in general, like some of kind of the hurdles we've seen from a global health equity side, which still very severely lacks um, in terms of like how we're looking at our vaccine strategy. Um, I think, however, though, we're approaching to the point right now of the nexus point of like these these technologies right now of our vaccines to see that uh, there are some limitations of the current technology and we need to kind of look at a broader expansion um, to kind of see obviously not just from a host protection aspect but also from an infection perspective as well and from a population infection perspective which has been a very difficult challenge because um, it's been one we still can't get our shit together excuse my language uh, <laughs> no you can uh, cast, like, it's okay Okay, um, <laughs> good. Uh, in terms of like getting the vaccines out to the rest of the world, but in terms of like getting, um, and even our own country right now, we're having like a difficulty getting boosters out to majority of the population. Um, and obviously hopeful in terms of getting vaccines to the below five group as well. I, I think that right now where we need to come to head right now within the next few months is uh, figuring out a strategy as to one, how do we, uh, on a yearly basis, evaluate the effectiveness of our current vaccine technology, which is something the FDA has been very hard at work on and uh, along with CDC. But we also need to look at like how much investment and how much resources do we pump into uh, to look at the next stages of the vaccine. Yeah. I don't think we've ever really kind of addressed it to this perspective, given the fact that this disease has posed so much new challenges from a public health perspective of not just from an acute infection perspective, but you know, post-infection uh, aspects as well of long COVID, um, mm -hmm. which I want to acknowledge is a big problem um, on this on this front. So we have a we have a very like a uh, big moral quandary when it comes to like you know looking at all of this, and I think we're you'll see in a lot of different meetings, especially I know ACIP will be meeting sometime next month uh, to discuss like how do we how do we come to a point as to like. Um, looking at the current technology and how much do we continue pushing boosters? And then also like, how do we start finding novel ways uh, to address like a broad spectrum immunity from that perspective? Real quick, ACIP is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, right? Correct, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, it's you're bringing up a lot of great points there. One, the, the one that's really, I wanna talk about is the, the booster question. You know, we, we talk about like the flu shot and we talk about how this might be going the way of the flu shot. It seems like there will be required uh, repeat shots, but the flu is, is pretty different in some ways. It's more predictable. It's like a winter time thing for the most part. There's this whole global surveillance network that the World Health Organization uses. To my knowledge, I don't think there's a global COVID surveillance strategy that helps us follow that. And the, even for the flu, there is this whole like process that goes into place to figuring out which strains we need to really focus on. And we don't, we don't necessarily have something in place for, for, for COVID yet. Am I right? Uh, are we getting there? Is that our major problem with this? It will be a huge challenge, not because of like, again, like if you look at the, you know, in terms of like how we develop the flu vaccine every year. It's a very tightly regulated, very 
uh, it's a well-oiled machine um, in terms of like really evaluating, uh, deciding and predicting as to what the next flu vaccine is. And it's not always always perfect either. Right. So I want to note that. But uh, also keeping in mind that technologies are very different. The flu utilizes like very limited as opposed to right now our, you know, you know, COVID vaccines. We're you, we have different manufacturers that are using different technologies and we're not even looking into considering the fact that the next generation could expand on that even more. Um, in terms of like looking at a yearly basis, uh, you're looking at a very much a regulatory logistic challenge that uh, goes beyond just like a process standpoint. And I, I think a lot, of the, a lot of discussions that the FDA had when they did do this meeting was just um, having that reality check to say like, how do we um, work with the private you know, industries and how do we work with international government um, groups to figure out a much more facilitated way to do this. And that question has not been answered. We don't have a framework yet for it. So I, I, I will be skeptical and to say that we will have something by this year, but maybe sometime next year we'll have some sort of like framework put down, but it, it's very hard to just, and you can't just simply take what we did with flu and be like, we'll just do it with COVID. It's, right. There's a little lot more nuance to kind of right. like expand upon. Right. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, my vibe from listening to that pack meeting where they discussed the direction they want to go is they really want to get to a point where they can treat COVID like flu as far as vaccination. I am really not a fan of that idea. I don't like it beyond a stopgap measure um, until we can get better, so to speak, vaccines. And when I say better vaccines, I'm not at all saying that our vaccines aren't good because our vaccines are absolutely incredible. Like I would absolutely never have expected anything close to the effectiveness that our vaccines had when I first heard about it, especially RNA vaccines. I have no faith the RNA vaccines would work. Like I'm really like eating crow there. You wouldn't believe it. Cause like I worked with it and I'm like, how are you going to store it? Like, like it's just, it's just impossible. Like you're gonna like you're gonna look at it funny, and then it's gonna fail. Like I don't know, but they're they're really incredible, and certainly they're not our only um you know weapon, so to speak, in in this fight. And we have a lot of other really excellent vaccines. But right now, we're kind of seeing the, the issue of the breadth of the immune response. Um, where Omicron. Um, it, it, the interesting thing about Omicron is like at the genome level, it's really not that different from the other variants, but the mutations are all very concentrated in the parts of the spike protein that uh, are recognized by antibodies. Um, so that's something that needs to be addressed. And um, the thing is like, that is very much addressable. Like there is work underway. It's still mostly in the preclinical stages to make a variant proof vaccine, but the early data are actually incredibly promising. Like for instance, out of Singapore, they had uh, participants uh, in a study who had had SARS-CoV-1, the like super, super scary deadly one from 2003. They gave them the Pfizer vaccine and they looked at their antibodies. They made antibodies that neutralized like a bunch of really distantly related coronaviruses at a really high level. You also see, um, for example, Walter Reed actually has in advanced clinical trials a um, it's called SPFN. It's like a bunch of spike receptor binding domains attached together uh, to a ferritin. Uh, and that is intended as a variant proof vaccine too. Uh, and then there's also um, one, another one that I really like that was recently um, featured in a preprint was Mosaic 8, which took like the receptor binding domains from a bunch of different um, Sarbico viruses, which is like that group of viruses that SARS is from and stuck them all in one thing. And that strategy is really brilliant because by using the different receptor binding domains on the same nanoparticle, you are selectively eliciting the antibodies that neutralize the broadest and cover the most variants. Um, you know, and so there are like a lot of approaches there. And the fact that so many of these coronaviruses need ACE2 um, gives them 
some limitations, so to speak, on their plasticity as an antigen. So like in, in some ways, a universal like SARS-CoV-2 vaccine should be much more doable than a universal flu vaccine. And mm-hmm. even on the front of a universal flu vaccine, we actually just um, in 2000, the end of 2020, there was an amazing phase one study published. And I wouldn't be like hyping up a phase one study, but like correlates of protection for flu are like relatively well established. Like I'm really bothered by like this kind of approach where like we're just going to like try to play like whack-a-mole with it and predict what variant is going to show up. And like, I get that there might be a time where that's necessary, um, but we, I, I really adamantly believe that we can do so much better if we had the political will and the finance. Like if it were up to me, there would be Operation Warp Speed Part 2 and Part 2A, which would be all about finding like an effective universal sort of ecovirus uh, vaccine. And then there would be Part 2B, which would be all about therapeutics. But, you know, no, no one puts me in charge of these decisions. So. Not yet, buddy. We'll wait for Warp Speed 2, the search for Spock. Uh, Ryan, you were going to say something? <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, it sounds like what I'm hearing is that the technology is all very good and whether it's uh, variant specific vaccines and like a surveillance system or some sort of um, variant proof vaccine, like we'll, we'll get to that technology at some point. What do you think though about kind of the uptake and especially with what we've seen with the, the existing vaccines and what we were seeing with kind of flu vaccine uptake even before the pandemic and, and throughout? Because those yeah, numbers are pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. that's definitely um, the biggest barrier. Like I, I remember. Um, so I've been like doing science communication about vaccines since like 2017, and that's when like I really got exposed to the anti-vaccine. And I was like, oh wow, this is like intense. This is gonna take a lot of work. And then like not that long ago, Francis Collins was like, you know, the one thing that we at the NIH really didn't anticipate is like that we would have a vaccine, but people wouldn't take it. And like I was like ready to like scream. Like it was just the most ridiculous tone deaf thing I've ever heard. You know what I feel? You know what's interesting is we have all this technology. We have all this stuff going for us. We have some of the smartest people working on these things, but we don't have like people. We need people from like the ad industry. We need like people who do public relations. We need people who understand Americans, like the same people who know when to roll out the new Coke like variants. These are the people that should be advising the CDC on how to get these people boosted. Like what's the maximal amount of like boosting frequency that people in America will accept? Like, how do we, how do we get this point across? Like, you know, it's still funny to me the, we need to communicate better the goals of these vaccines. You know, the, the simple goal of the vaccine is not to prevent infection. It's really to prevent severe disease, hospitalization and death more so than just infection. You know, that message doesn't seem to be getting out to a lot of Americans. And because of that, people will get infected. And then you'll have some med contrarians say, well, what's the point of vaccines? You get it anyways. You know, and, and then there's even within the medical community, this is a problem. Why do we not have Dr. N, you, you work with the CDC. How, how do we do they have people like this working non-scientists? like people who are in the ad industry are doing something different, helping to direct our, our approach? Not really. Not would really. We, I mean, would it be that hard to do? It's not It's not within the realm of impossibility. I mean, like we, we could definitely do it. Um, but I, I find that I, you know, there's a lot of resistance from that perspective, just based on like, you know, uh, there's a lot of nuance that needs to be communicated about it. And I, I think we're at the point right now where, um, the messaging has become so convoluted that if we do, even if we do bring an ad agency, I think it'd be more focused on 
trying to repair the the bit of reputation that CDC has left, um, but also just trying to bolster trust in a lot of audiences that we have seen. Um, so I think even right now, if we were to do a new type of messaging, um, it would have to be, it, it, I think that that would be a very difficult task um, to do right now at this juncture. But it's not something we should not do or explore for like the next iteration if we do have a new technology that does come out. Um, but I can tell you right now from the, for the PR groups and a lot of the stuff who, people who do the communications, um, they're very much kind of just on the receiving end of a lot of stuff and they just publish whatever they're being told. Like it's not very, uh, there's not really much back and forth or really kind of like dynamic environment for communication. Um, and it's obviously, you can tell that's kind of suffered in a lot of aspect. And um, even our website, for example, like it's, it, I can talk to you, tell you right now that the amount of people I talk to on Twitter and Twitch and everywhere, people don't know how to navigate that website. It's a mess. I am not, I have no issue saying that from my own agency, that, that website is a mess to navigate. Uh, just getting to some, something as simple of a question as I'm pregnant, can I get this vaccine? And it's not easy to just simply get to that point um, yeah. from yeah. a usability perspective. Well, well, speaking of your work with the CDC, uh, let me ask you, I feel like the CDC has gotten a lot of criticism over the last couple of years, some of which I don't think is entirely valid. Some probably is. What what do you think is a valid criticism of how the CDC has managed things so far and what is not? So this is a great question. The first, very much so, I would say is like a valid criticism is um, very much from a messaging perspective. Our messaging has been very inconsistent, uh, very much of a mess. It's very confusing. Um, and there's certainly guidances and certain like, you know, ways we've handled data that, and visualizations that have really come into question, such as the new tr community transmission level one that has a lot of people in uproar. And I personally do not agree with uh, the dashboard uh, in many aspects of measuring community transmission, but it has served it basically has confused a lot of folks and uh, people don't know whether if like, should I mask or not? Should I get the booster or not? And um, I, I think that when you release certain guidances that it needs to be very much, uh, you know, there has to be trust in the people to make these decisions. And I think we don't give that trust to the folks. And uh, as a result, it tends to be a very convoluted issue right now into that. But from the second perspective, in terms of like what isn't true is, uh, I, I think a lot of people tend to think that CDC is like, you know, um, overwhelmingly powerful organization can that can easily, you know, flip a button and switch laws and like tell states what to do. And I'm like, but they no. own so many vaccine patents. <laughs> but they can't do anything, you know, and that's, I think that's one of the biggest challenge, the biggest I like, think that really kind of bothers me about a lot of like, the misinformation about CDC from that perspective is uh, the extent of our authorities uh, is highly miscommunicated and highly misunderstood. Mm -hmm. um, in, in fact, if anything, our CDC has very little authority as demonstrated by a lot of stuff that's going on by individual states, what they're doing and how they're pursuing forward and how it's very difficult for us to homogenize and ingest data from all the different health systems. And uh, because there's a lot of back and forth from it, it has been one of the biggest challenges of my, you know, from the past year for me is to let people know that um, CDC can only do so much and we only have certain authorities that we can operate with. And um, there was a very enlightening like Harvard talk that was done with all the previous CDC directors, which I highly suggest everyone watch, um, where like, I think it was the past five, six directors 
And they all said the same thing over and over again about how, uh, you know, it's just like them being able to operate efficiently and from a much broader, you know, powers, you know, authority perspective is very difficult uh, from bottom up, from the state agencies and up, and also from a top down, from an executive branch and down. So uh, we tend to face a lot of like back and forth. And even within our own parent organization for health and human services, there's a lot of like political battles between different groups as to like who owns what, who does what. And we run into a lot of problems from that. And, um, you know, I, I, I think again, if any, if anything, I think that it'd be very valuable, very much so for the general public to understand that uh, the CDC can only operate within certain limits of authority and like set, you know, and uh, because of that, we, we can provide a lot of suggestions and we can do a lot of support state organizations, um, but we just don't have the authority to say, you need to wear a mask and you need to do this. We can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the biggest criticisms I hear from people is that the CDC is so authoritative and like overreaching. And that's so obviously not true when you look at, at anything. And the fact that people don't realize that it is just a government agency, they have a lot of limitations. Um, and I mean, making decisions about masking, not masking, like everyone has made, made mistakes in this pandemic. We're all learning as we go. So it is very bizarre, the kind of like hatred for the CDC being being some sort of villain when they really have had no authority to tell anyone anything other than kind of trying to give out information. Um, yeah. And the thing is, is like, you know, Ryan, the great point about that is like, you know, we can literally come out the next day and I can guarantee you if I said if CDC somehow come out, comes out next day and says, uh, we recommend that every public uh, you know, transportation agency uh, utilize masking as mandatory. Just look at the adoption rate as to by by state and by county, and you'll see that it's the same. It's always the same pattern of like different groups of people that will either adopt it or they will refuse to do it because again, it's a suggestion or recommendation. Whether if you just decide to adopt it or not. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com different story so and the the criticisms too it's so bizarre how people will say that the cdc is this like authoritarian agency but then at the same time say that they're like a, a toothless like weak agency um and so it's yeah. just bizarre to see the criticism go both ways but one thing too in talking to people and hearing kind of like criticisms of vaccine uptake that i find really surprising still every day i don't know why i should just get get used to how <laughs> terrible things are but people are so shocked that like they would need a second or third or fourth vaccine um and it's like have, I don't, what do you think you did with all your childhood vaccines yeah. i don't know is right. nobody paying attention <laughs> well and you know one of the strangest things too is that like i have to remind people that the virus will still 
vi- the virus will virus. It's going to mutate. It's going to do its thing. Yeah. And from a very much, and then also it's very like, you know, I have to remind many people that there are certain countries where not even 1% of the population has, been, has received their primary dose of the vaccine where SARS-CoV-2 is very much a reality along with other infections that are going on right now. There's other infectious diseases, you know, that are happening. And we have to come to a, we have to come to that point where we have to let folks know that the virus is going to continuously go down a route of evolutionary change that we need to, our technologists need to keep up with because, you know, there's only certain points as to like where, you know, it does break down and we can't keep up with it. But I mean, that's going to be a far away, but at this point right now, like we have a due, due diligence to kind of let people know that um, the vaccines can only work to a certain extent. Um, if we continue, like, you know, obviously vaccinating people worldwide um, and we continue obviously making sure that we're preventing infections as much as possible. But, you know, I, I think that what we're seeing right now is there's a lot of frustration and a lot of apathy from people because of the fact that we have to continuously push back booster doses and it can get exhausting for the lay person because we keep think we keep telling them that each dose is going to protect them um but i think that there's a gap in communication that they obviously based on the fact that the virus there is going to be a possibility that you might have to do a booster down the line we don't know when uh we don't know how but depending on the epidemiology, depending on what the situation that looks at or the variants that are out there, we just simply do not know and we need to communicate that uncertainty factor. One thing that sticks out to me was the fact that from a very early point, people were messaging the phrase fully vaccinated. Um, and like, I don't know that we'll ever be fully vaccinated for, mm-hmm. for certain things. I mean, look at like influenza. Um, and I wonder if that, maybe contributed but i don't know people weren't getting vaccinated before anyway so we were so desperate to get people vaccinated that i think people were very cautious in how they describe the the vaccine process and i think to be honest i think that a lot of that's on us as science communicators we we could have made it clear that there is very likely going to be repeat doses and i think we tried but we were trying so hard just to get the basic vaccination in i don't know how well that that worked um ed ed what were you gonna say well i think firstly i think in the beginning we just honestly did not know that there would be a need for repeat doses um that wasn't clear at the time there was nothing like definitive to suggest that um one thing that is still really challenging and especially more so in the beginning because we know we understand a lot better now is we don't have well fleshed out correlates of protection like this is the other thing that like really bugs me i like i so often i like be talking to someone and uh, they say, well, like, I don't need the vaccine. I checked and I have antibodies, you know? And it's like, <laughs> like the, the, the headache that follows because like, I, it, it's so hard to explain to someone that like, just because they have antibodies does not necessarily mean that they're protected because we don't, we haven't defined a threshold for protection. That's incredibly hard to do. We don't know how, uh, what, sometimes it's the antibodies that they use isn't even looking at spike. It's looking at like nucleocapsid. Um, so like, it's just, it's such a minefield to communicate about. Um, so uh, definitely, I think there were some missteps, but also I think like we just honestly didn't know, like the virus is not like, like with measles, for example, um, that's also technically a respiratory virus, but like you get two doses and you're basically immune for life. And a big part of that is that um, it takes 
a little while for the virus, like for the infection to get going and your immune system can step in before you become symptomatic or contagious um, in most cases. Um, so that was part. The other thing is I really don't like the way the word waning is being tossed around with these vaccines in some ways, because I don't think that it's necessarily correct. Like for example, if you look at people's um, immune response months after their vaccine, you look at their B cells, even nine months later, those B cells are still evolving a better antibody response within their lymph nodes. What's happening, the part that is quote unquote waning is their specific antibody levels. Um, because, and that's normal because in the beginning of the immune response, you have a bunch of short-lived plasma cells, you have these plasma blasts, they're antibody secreting cells, but they don't last for long, they start dying. And then the burden of antibody production falls solely to the long-lived plasma cells, which mainly live in your bone marrow. Uh, and that they will maintain some basal level. But the, <clears throat> the memory B cells that stick around your lymph node that are still evolving antibodies, um, but not secreting them, I should say, um, B cell receptors technically, not antibodies, because antibodies are secreted for them. Anyway, the B cells that are still evolving antibodies um, are um, actually a really important barrier because they are your protection against a new variant. They, uh, those mutations are, are in some ways anticipating a, a change to the antigen that they originally encountered. And uh, that's where a lot of the plasticity comes from. Like we had a vaccine that was based on the original uh, Wuhan H1 uh, variant that was first seen in December of 2019 really. And it covered us through alpha, beta, delta. And these are like antigenically, they're all really, really different. You know, so um, I, th I think waning is, is the wrong term to describe the immune response. I could, I could stipulate that the protection against infection is waning, but I do not think that the immune response is, and I don't like it when people say that. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'll never use it again. <laughs> Listen, Edward will lecture you on Twitter. He will scold as, you on. As he should. So, you know, you kind of touched on this a, a couple of times now. Like, it sounds like you feel like the boosters are really just a stopgap mechanism to help us until we find a way to to get a more robust response. Uh, it sounds like actually what you're saying is we've had a pretty robust response um, to variable. Robust. To, to been, variable. I'm really variable. amazed by it, yeah. But you know, with this, this thing, to my understanding, the COVID uh, virus mutates at a rate like three to five times faster than the flu virus, if, that's, if I have that correct. It depends. So you have to phrase it very, very carefully. I, I yes, like, um, it, it accumulates mutations at a more rapid rate than influenza, but like the actual rate, like per replication cycle is uh, significantly less because um, coronaviruses have such a big genome, basically, that they have to have a proofreading enzyme when they replicate because mm -hmm. if they didn't have it, they would um, not be able to successfully cause infections because they would undergo error catastrophe and yeah. like they wouldn't Stop generate working. viable virus. Yeah. yeah. Um, so basically like, because there are so many more SARS-CoV-2 infections, the rate at which, um, like the virus has I accumulated see. mutations, like yeah. nucleotide changes is faster than influenza, but the actual rate of mutation yeah. for influenza is much faster. The virus exactly. itself on a virus to virus basis does not mutate much faster. It's just that there's so much virus, more virus out there. You're bound to get more, uh, mutations. Okay. I, I, I get that. Um, so, but, but. Let me get a sense of what you guys think is then the future of uh, what you'd like to see, at least in terms of uh, future vaccines. I'm assuming neither of you want just a booster every year or an annual shot. I mean, that's fine if that's what we need. But what do you guys and I'm asking you to predict the future. I'm asking you to, to say some crazy shit here. I know. But like, what would you guys like to see in terms of vaccines that you think would be the best shot? My so two things, really. I mean, like I. I I want to, well, several things actually. Um, 
I'm okay with us right now at this point using boosters as a stopgap measure just based on the reality of it. Um, so I want to make that clear for everyone as well. If you do have access to a booster, you should definitely get it. But I think the second thing is, is that, you know, we have two different types of technologies that we really want to take a look at. One is like uh, a truly a, a robust, safe uh, mucosal vaccine. Um, and then second being the fact of looking at, uh, and this could intersect as well from this one too, is a truly pan cervical virus or just like pan coronavirus like vaccine um, that can demonstrate efficacy across all the previous variants and also, you know, like possibility of like doing that. Um, so those are the two, I would say really that we really need to kind of see within the next, you know, year or two uh, for us to really push forward. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we can definitely do very much so um, as well is like, you know, developing technologies for delivery mechanisms, such as intranasal stuff like that versus an intramuscular injection. Um, you know, and there's some challenges with the, you know, the nasal one, but, uh, and as demonstrated by the flu vaccine that we did in the early 2000s. But I, I think that it's worth revisiting to kind of see obviously where we can go with this. Uh, and, you know, I know folks like such as Akiko Iwasaki over at Yale and a couple of other uh, leading folks and uh, WHO is tracking like a good six or seven or maybe eight, actually, I think it's eight uh, companies that are right now working on these vaccines. And I, I think that that is the natural evolutionary step towards what we're going to see. I don't know who's going to make it to the end line first um, mm -hmm. in terms mm -hmm. of it, but um, we I think, you know, we need to broaden our perspective beyond just the host immunity, but also looking at from a very much, a, you know, infection perspective. And um, I'm hoping too, very much in the sense that, you know, this would lead into much more, uh, you know, diverse research into long COVID and, yeah. you know, figuring out how do we address that in its etiology, because right now it's just, it's still a black box in many aspects. That, that makes a lot of sense. Ed, you had mentioned to me a couple of years ago at this point, mucosal immunity and how that might be sort of the, the way of the future here. Can you explain what, what that means to our listeners, mucosal immunity? Yeah. Um, so basically with the immune system, it's all about location. Um, so usually when people are talking about the immune system, they are talking about systemic immunity, which is mostly like your blood and your internal organs. But when you think about it, that is not the scene of the action for most infections. Most infections, we have to inhale them or ingest them, or they get into our eyes where someone stabs us in the head and they get into our brain. No, I'm kidding about the last one. Um, anyway. Yikes. Um, <laughs> got dark real quick. <laughs> I just want to see if you're paying attention. Um, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so you have to, um, they, they encounter, we encounter them through our mucosal surfaces. And the way that the immune system behaves there is actually quite different from the way that it behaves on the, the topological inside of our body. Because like, if you think about it, right, like the aerodigestive tract, like we, we breathe, we inhale, like all of these antigens. And like, if, if we made like an immune, an immune response against all of them, like that's, that's kind of the basis for asthma in some ways, that's uh, allergic inflammation, uh, food allergy, you know, so that wouldn't be great. So you have to um, it, you have to like be very careful to maintain like this level of tolerance at the mucosal surface, but also you have all of these viruses and bacteria and fungi and all these things um, that uh, you have to be able to protect against. So if uh, what happens at mucosal surfaces is you can get um, tissue resident populations of certain uh, immune cells in particular, like T cells are the ones that everyone thinks of, but B cells too. Uh, and they um, can, re the response at mucosal surfaces is therefore going to be a lot faster. And if you think about like 
potential advantages that SARS-CoV-2 infection would have over vaccination as far as like the risk of reinfection. Uh, and I am absolutely not encouraging anyone to ever attempt to get their immunity by infection. That is an absolutely horrendous idea um, and a tremendous risk. But um, the thing that goes to everyone's mind seems to be that like it has more antigen than spike protein. That's really probably not it. Like all, almost all the protection really does seem to be concentrated around the spike protein, to be honest. Um, at least as far as the antibody aspect of it. Um, but it's probably more about the fact that when you get infected with SARS-CoV-2, you're inhaling it, and then to get another SARS-CoV-2 infection, you have to inhale it again. But that second infection, you have all of those B cells, T cells that already live in your upper airway that are primed to respond. So it has a lot of theoretical advantages. The problem is because you have to work with mucosal tolerance, um, it's tricky to dose things correctly. Um, and you also have to be really careful about reactogenicity. Like for example, there was an intranasal flu vaccine that was adjuvanted for a while. And in theory that should have yielded better immunity, but it also did cause Bell's palsy um, because it was given intranasally. And Dr. So, Ann, that's what you were referring to in that, uh, the, the prior nasal uh, flu vaccine? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah that's actually, a problem. Yeah. So, I mean, working it out is a little bit tricky, but actually Akiko Iwasaki's group has figured out a very clever strategy to get around it um, called prime and spike. So basically you give someone a priming dose of like the mRNA vaccine, for instance, that's given intramuscularly, and then you give them just the spike protein intranasally. And that pulls in the um, immune cells that are elicited by your mRNA vaccine, but it brings them into the upper airway and they become resident immune cells and they start secreting antibody, all that. And that should circumvent a lot of the issues um, in theory. Uh, but so far that's only preclinical. And that's that's one strategy I'm really looking forward to. The other one that really, really impressed me, but I, I am skeptical it's gonna get picked up is um, they made an adenovirus vector vaccine. Those are like now radioactive for the pharmaceutical companies, except for like Janssen. Uh, because uh, honestly, the reasons don't really make sense to me. It seems to be because of the very, very rare clotting complication that can occur in some people called thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. Um, and basically, no one really wants to touch it because that mostly affects um, premenopausal women. And they, uh, the way that a health economist explains to me is like they tend to make the vaccination decisions for the family. So if they feel unsafe taking it, no one is going to feel, and their family is going to feel safe taking it. Oh, so it's kind of like, yeah, so it's kind of like dead on arrival. No one really wants to touch the adenovirus factors. Well, maybe someone will figure out a workaround for that as well. Maybe it'll be you, Ed. <laughs> let's Why let's uh, it might be. Let's let's go to listener questions here. Uh, there's a couple. Uh, to go through. Let, let's start with Karen Percy, and, and anyone can weigh in on this here. Um, I just got my fourth a week ago. I'm at every five to six months pace currently. Any estimates on how many more years I'm going to need to do this? That part you can answer. We've kind of discussed a little bit. And the second part of her question is, also, I mixed two Pfizer, two Moderna based on things I've read. What's the latest data, data, on if that's a more effective strategy. So let's let's focus on the second part of that question about mixing shots. Uh, what do you guys recommend? I'm not allowed to make recommendations because I don't have a medical license. So nothing I say is medical advice. What would you do? Um, the data basically showed that if at some point your schedule includes a dose of mRNA vaccine, you will get a fantastic antibody response, T cell responses with the adenovirus vectors were always fantastic. So it's never really been a concern. Um, if you boost mRNA with adenovirus, you get a really, really excellent boost. The antibody levels are slightly lower than if you would have boosted with mRNA. So like, 
I mean, it seems fine. There aren't any safety issues noted at this point that I'm aware of. Um, and in, the reality is we're probably going to have to mix uh, vaccines at some point in the future when we have more options and everything. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not really something to shy away from. We do it with like routine childhood vaccines all the time. It's almost never the case that like you have to actually like, match the brand of the um, manufacturer. Right. We don't everything. even talk about brands really outside of this. All right, Dr. Mm-hmm. N, what about you? What do you think? I'd say it's perfectly fine just to kind of like get straight to the point on that one, you know, mixing and matching. I've always been a a fan of it. I don't think it's a big deal uh, based on, you know, we've seen a lot of the safety and efficacy studies, like, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic um, with the different technologies. So uh, I think this principle still applies for, you know, follow-up booster doses as well. So, um, you know, whatever is available to you. And if you do have the option and everything, Thing like that like I'm, t- I'm slightly towards Moderna but um it, it really is just like and I, I, I'm triple Pfizer so that just tells you in terms of like I'm not coming in from a biased perspective sure on that one. right yeah I'm also triple Pfizer Ryan what about you I'm triple Moderna mm-hmm. yeah you are um <laughs> the cool kid <laughs> okay let's go on to the next question so a lot of these questions we've we've uh, already covered but let me find ones that we have not yet this is from Crescent Martin Maybe more on the regulatory side, but what's the outlook for whether we will shorten the lag from adult to pediatric authorizations for updates and any future enhancements like nasal sprays, et cetera? Will littlest kids always be behind in protections by a year or more? You know, this is a fantastic question. I get a lot, I get asked a lot for the under five groups and a lot of parents who worry about how we keep forgetting them. And I, I think we can also apply this principle too to like pregnant patients as well, because there's a lot of controversy regarding like how we didn't include that many pregnant patients at the beginning with the clinical trials. Um, and I think one of the many things we want to stress too is like speed. We, there has to be speed. And then there also has to be like, uh, you know, safety from the clinic, you know, the participant standpoint, and also looking at the fact that, you know, when we start getting down to any groups that are below 17, um, you know, you know, like any type of like, you know, treatment study or or immunological study becomes like twofold more complicated in terms of like studying, like as to like, what is the ideal dosage and like, uh, you know, in terms of like, uh, what the response is and then, you know, immunobridging and all that. And I, I think that all of those factors can lead into one of the many decisions as to why we typically, uh, one, are a little hesitant to bring in pregnant patients at first, which I hope that will change in terms of that paradigm, but also from the fact of, you know, bringing in children uh, very much less because, you know, when we start looking at adults, it's, an, it's, a, it's a lower hanging fruit. It's easier for us to go in, address it and put down, uh, you know, recommendations for the vaccines because of those studies. But once we get down to, you know, like I said, sort of younger pediatric groups, you know, that's why we have like all these different cohort groups. It's not like, it's not like arbitrary. We chose those things. It's just based on the fact that, you know, from previous studies and what we understand uh, for children immunological studies is that their children immunology is like, pediatric immunology is like a huge complex field right there in terms of like how uh, difficult it is for us to, you know, uh, tweak regulate and also to kind of find the ideal approach that is, you know, safe enough um, in terms of like, there's not a lot less reactogenicity, but also in terms of like best bang for the buck in terms of like the immunization wise, right? Uh, We want to make sure that whatever dose we give, uh, it's going to confer a significant amount of protection that's equal to that of the adult. That is a much harder problem to address uh, than I think we typically lead on. And um, I, I think that it's one of the many issues. 
did we communicate this in a bad way? Yes, we did. Um, in terms of like a lot of the, the Pfizer, Moderna back and forth with FDA and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's really leads to a lot of frustration. But I will say from a very much a safety perspective and um, other, other things, I always like to post this ch- uh, situation to folks. It's like, if we were to push out a vaccine that was rushed, or in this case, like um, we didn't fully assess the safety of a vaccine, especially with children, the deleterious effect in terms of like trust and also from future and also like a lot of the ammo for right. anti-vaxxers would ex, you know explode by like twofold if right. we d- were sloppy in any shape or form and it would last and, forever it would it would last forever yeah yeah, yeah. that's so, the kind of that people would not forget no i understand that that's a tough spot yeah. a, and i under, but i also understand why people with kids under five are so anxious and upset Absolutely. i get it too I mean, they do feel a little bit like they're being left behind in a way, like everyone's sort of moving on and getting, trying to get back into the to the regular uh, things. And it's, it's hard when you have to worry about your kids. I, I get it. I get it. All right. Um, yeah. one, one more question. Um, this is from David Young. Is there even a shred of evidence that treating the sore arm after <laughs> the vaccine with ibuprofen will then blunt the antiviral intended effect of the vaccines? This is a great question. I, I really, I, I've been asked this a bunch of times. I don't have a great answer for this. What do you guys say? Well, I mean, in the trials, um, people were allowed to take uh, NSAIDs to manage their reactogenicity, and still they ended up with a 95% efficacy, um, at least for the two-month period. And then, you know, progressively, like if efficacy against symptomatic infection wanes, but Nonetheless, um, as far as clinical data, and I did look, I have seen nothing um, that suggests that this has a meaningful effect. Um, the, the general best practice is like, don't take the NSAIDs beforehand because first of all, you might not have any symptoms. Like I, my, my three doses of Pfizer, I had like nothing. Like if I were in a trial, I would be positive. I got placebo. It, it was really weird, but yeah, you know, right. that's how it is for some people. And that also doesn't correlate with the quality of your immune response. The only thing the only aspect of reactogenicity that like has been shown to have like some relationship is actually like the, the um, presence of fever. But anyway, um, this is, you know what, this is because it's the beauty of being young. Ryan, my new thing to do is I'll bring on like, you know, my, my friends that come on routinely, like Ryan are so much younger than me. What I like to do is bring on people younger than them to make them feel old. So Ed is here to make you feel the way you make me feel. Do you understand? Oh, wait, wait, I can help you this. I can help you with this. I was born in 1997. Wow. That was like five years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> you did mention though age being a thing here. With age though, actually, um, it's kind of the opposite. Younger people tend to have much more intense reactogenicity. Oh, that's interesting. And I, older I... people tend to tolerate it a lot better. Um, it's because their immune systems are a lot more robust. And rea- like, like this, this relationship between the immunogenicity, the quality of immune response and reactogenicity is actually really complicated. At the individual level, it doesn't seem to correlate, but it is the case that more reactogenic vaccines tend to also be more immunogenic. Um, so it, it's very hard to disentangle. Um, so, um, but anyway, the short answer is I have not seen any clinical data. I've seen some mechanistic study. I saw one recently out of Japan that was, it was really interesting. They looked at a calcium ion channel in T cells and showed that NSAIDs reduced flux through it. And, um, I, I vaguely remember something about, um, autoimmune channelopathies at some point in my studies. Um, so that I thought that was cool. Um, but like a short answer is like, I've never seen anything to suggest any kind of meaningful effect for like taking an NSAID to manage okay. reactogenicity yeah. symptoms. Dr. Ang agrees with that, right? Yeah, you can take okay. it over that. I, yeah, <laughs> the doses you'd have to take to really get those kind of downstream effects would be, I mean, it'd be like around the clock high dose. So 
I wouldn't worry about it. This is one of those rumors that came out like at the beginning of the pandemic from some unsubstantiated group, I think in like France, it might've even been the hydroxychloroquine guy. Um, but yeah, like Ed said, there's no good evidence. I do. I do remember it was like one of the health ministers in France had come out very early in the process and their very preliminary preliminary data had said that maybe the people who were taking NSAIDs did worse with COVID but I'm sure that was probably because they were the sickest people and they were taking more NSAIDs than other people. Anyways, you guys, thanks. This is great. I've learned a lot from this and I know our listeners probably have too. You guys are all some of the smartest people I could potentially get into one Zoom call and not make this thing explode. So let's let's uh, get plugs in for everyone. Uh, Ryan, first, tell everyone where they can find you. I am on Twitter at Ryan Marino. Um, Ryan's amazing. Please follow him if you don't, um, or just listen to the show because I bring him on all the time. Uh, Dr. N, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Neurofoyer. I know that's a very, it's a very difficult name <laughs> from that perspective, but you probably have seen it in the tag and uh, Coffee Street. So uh, you can find me on Twitch, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, that is where I typically do a lot of my science communication. I typically do a lot of live Q and A's on Twitch. Uh, for folks who do have genuine questions or concerns about uh, the different technologies and like safety concerns, so um, I do open that up for everyone. So no, you're 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 awesome, man. You do an amazing job, and you might actually get me to come on Twitch. So uh, let, let's let's bring me <laughs> on Twitch and let me see what it's all about. Let, let's do some Twitch. Happy to do so. All right. Happy to. Um, do. I'm terrified. I'm a- absolutely terrified, but I will do it. Uh, and and last but not least, Ed, tell people where they can find you. Uh, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at E, like my first name, and Nirenberg, like my last name. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at deplatformdisease. Uh, and I have a blog called deplatformdisease.com where I do like long form deeper dives into like specific questions relating to vaccine hesitancy. Oh, I, I checked it out, by the way. It's fantastic. And not just your, your Twitter, but the blog. So I highly oh, recommend you. both. Okay, uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, if you guys haven't already, please rate and review us at iTunes. Thank you to Dean for help with production. And thank you guys so much. Mwah, 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 mwah. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified healthcare provider for your specific healthcare needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.